feel like Gordon Bombay would have taken his career to even further heights. Everything's flashy, everything's cocaine, everything's fun. Open wide for some soccer. I don't care what you think about, what your personal thoughts are at home. I care that you hate the Cowboys. Welcome back, everybody, to the Sports Experience Podcast. Uh, Chris and uh, Dom here uh, for another episode. And uh, before uh, we begin, we're just a couple of local Tucson comics recording here at Angle Studio, which is here for all of your audio needs. And uh, if you do us a big favor, um, if you like what you're listening to, uh, hit that subscribe button, like us on all our socials. And uh, Chris, we have a very special episode today. That's right. We got a special episode and a special guest. We do indeed. Uh, Why don't you introduce yourself? Elias? Uh, I am Elias, a part-time pseudo-Tucson comic and uh, boxing aficionado and uh, James Tony super fan. Yes, and uh, I did want to bring up all of the boxing episodes um, that we do come out with. Uh, This is the guy behind him uh, pitching us suggestions, so if you like the uh, Ibi Abuchi or the Galata or the Riddick Bow episodes, uh, this is the man to thank. So, uh, and today, because he is such a big James Tony fan, we are going to have our James Tony episode. So... Jump right in, Chris. Yeah. Uh, born, what, August 24th, 68, in Ann Arbor. Moved to Detroit when he was about three, and then something happened. Well, something kind of happens in between That's with his right. mom and something dad. That's right. Something happened there. Um, his dad living that rough life. Um, his mom just being a mom, holding James. And his dad came up and uh, shot her in the leg. Mm-hmm. Came out blasting. Came out blasting. And uh, definitely held uh, held quite the grudge against his dad uh, growing up. Apparently, his dad was also a former boxer, um, almost a Bobby Boucher level of anger. <laughs> Easily, uh, yes. Yeah. And then his dad went away for a bunch of years, I think, for rape or something. So he's been in jail forever. And uh, so he grew up in a rough life. You know what I mean? Like just the start of it, you can see that he had a rough upbringing. And then coming up in Detroit, I imagine it was pretty rough. So. Well, his mom was quite the badass, though. That's true. What uh, what I found out, uh, she ended up opening up her own, uh, basically, bakery called Specialty Cakes and Pies in uh, 1981. She went back to school to try and help provide a better life for James. And uh, James really didn't get into boxing uh, at the beginning of his life. Uh, football was his sport. Uh, you want to talk to us about that, Elias, and uh, a famous uh, event that happened? Yeah, I uh, played football in high school, quarterback, and ended up uh, going to, I believe it was Michigan State. Uh, and during, I, it wasn't even during the season, gets into an altercation with a young Dion Sanders over a bunk bed <laughs> in, in which James knocks out Dion. Uh, according to James, Dion, of course, has uh, never commented on well, this event. Not a big primetime moment. <laughs> no, no. Uh, but uh, he, he fucked around and found out pretty he, much. So Me hitting him, him hitting the floor. <laughs> But uh, he sustained an injury, though, an ankle injury, where the uh, doctors had said that this could be, you know, you know, it'll end your career and could be, you know, something that'll linger for the rest of your life if you keep playing football. So he found the boxing gym. Uh, do you want to talk about uh, kind of uh, where he trained and everything about his amateur career? Yeah, I ended up in the Cronk Gym in Detroit yep. uh, under Bill Miller, who was one of the uh, lead trainers at Cronk. Didn't have much of an amateur career, just really short amateur run and then went straight to the pros. Took a little time to get built up, but Bill really introduced him to a lot of older fighters like Ezard Charles, which mm-hmm. James kind of modeled himself after. And just really a throwback style that James had and cultivated pretty quickly. Uh, kind of picked up boxing like a savant. Yeah. Or, well, it 
something that I thought was kind of interesting because he came in pretty much as a clean slate. So Bill pretty much looked at him and was just like, well, you're completely athletic. You're a top, I mean, high school and college football player. And now I can pretty much make you into the fighter that I want. And you really see that with the shoulder roll, which I thought was so ridiculous when you watch him essentially just dodge like 50 punches in a row. Um <laughs> But yeah, that's that's the way I got it. Was Bill was just like, oh, I can make this guy to be the boxer I want. Oh, I was gonna say yeah. As an amateur, um, thirty-three wins, uh, two knockouts, um, two losses. Um, it, this is where he was nicknamed uh, "Lights Out" by uh, Gregory Gregory Owens. Actually, this is where he earned his nickname for well knocking people's lights out <laughs> as he would do a lot of over the course of his career. Yeah, definitely. Um, so. Uh, getting into his professional career by March of 1991. He had won his first 25 fights. That's what's so amazing. Uh, which we're talking about like a span of two years? Yeah. Uh-huh. Because as we were talking about before the podcast, he loves to fight. That's what he was put on this earth to do. Fight and eat. Yeah. And in equal measure. And, yeah, I don't think there's anything that makes him happier. Training, not, not so much. <laughs> uh, not a big fan of the running. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was even back then, even when he was like an amateur, he never did any cardio or anything like that. The only thing he ever did was spar and he would spar all day. And that's what they were saying was he would literally spar against all types of like whoever wanted to spar. He would bring him. It was like the mountain in Game of Thrones where he was just like <laughs> slaying people. They're just like, oh, God, James is back. <laughs> But um, as far as his manager, though, he had quite an interesting uh, route for that because his first manager um, was shot 19 times and murdered. But his second manager was a lady. And a weird, in the boxing world, yeah. she seemed out of, out of you know. Which I, I think speaks to James's paranoia that would show itself over his career. Totally. That, you know, he had plenty of options but went with the completely unknown untested Jackie Callan. I mean, he could have went with Don King or top rank and instead just random Jewish lady. And he would put a star of David on his trunks in yeah. appreciation for her. She, uh, I think was in entertainment management, I, I think so. as outside of uh, sports. So she was one of the first sports clients that she had, um, by March of 91, as I had said, um, he was 25. Um, Oh, and then his only draw was against the guy that he fought with chicken pox. So and then beat him again, Sanderline Williams, mm -hmm. I believe. Um, promoter Barb Arum uh, wanted him to fight uh, Michael Nunn, uh, fifty thousand uh, dollars, fifteen thousand in expenses, for, and one million dollars for his next three fights if he ended up beating Nunn, because James is chomping at the bit. His biggest purse to that point was twelve thousand um, dollars, and James's quote, which is just typical James Tony, "Take the fight, I will beat that son of a bitch." Yeah, he talks so much shit. I love it so much. Um, and this is, like, he doesn't really change who he is. Like, the the fame, the money, he literally is the same guy from when I bet he started boxing, which is so awesome. I mean, if you look up James Tony shit-talking on YouTube, you're going to go through multiple pages. I was going to say, there's almost more highlights of that than of him actually boxing. <laughs> That's it's, his sizzle reel in addition to yeah. the boxing. 
Yeah, which I always rooted for a Mike Tyson, James Tony fight just for the shit talking, but sadly it never came to pass. Oh, that's so sad, honestly. The press conferences alone. Yeah. <laughs> so he was a 21, uh, 20 to 1 underdog against none um, in that particular fight, May 10th, 1991, in Davenport, Iowa, which was Michael Nunn's hometown of all. And it was for the uh, IBF middleweight belt. And uh, this was a pretty. Uh, Pretty interesting fight. You want to get into it, Elias? Yeah, at the time, Nunn was pretty widely considered, if not number one, number two, pound for pound. Uh, Well-established middleweight champion, James was kind of an unknown coming into the fight. And it was a, a fairly even fight through most of it, with Nunn having an edge you know, going into the later rounds. But as James would come oh, yeah. show throughout his career, he had a... Despite the bad training habits, he had a gas tank. He could you know, go into the late rounds and... You know, none let his guard down, and yeah, that's he, really all it took. Yeah, caught him with a right uppercut, and that just kind of dazed him, got back up, and then Tony basically just finished the job and finished him off. It, quite a big upset for the time, I should say. Well, I mean, he was 20-1 to 1 betting, so nobody thought he was going to come in and do this. And like you said, none was like the guy that everybody was looking at as, like, the pound-for-pound no. pound guy. I mean, his nickname was second to none. I mean... <laughs> Well, he was certainly second to none on that day. He, indeed. Um, the Ring Magazine named him Fighter of the Year, and uh, his next seven fights, uh, he retained the uh, middleweight title, although uh, there were a couple in between that uh, were some close calls for him. Uh, yeah, notably, uh, are we to Dave Tiberi? Yeah. Which mm -hmm. would, uh, yeah, that, that was, uh, for anyone who's watched the Tiberi fight, most of James's losses are debatable. That one is not. Uh, basically got dominated by... A fairly unknown Dave Tiberi, who uh, history is trying to kind of made him out to be less than he was. He was Bernard Hopkins' primary sparring partner for a number of years. Oh, wow. Pretty well-respected in the Philadelphia area. And he just muscled a very weight-drained James the entire fight. Uh, just outworked him, out-hustled him. Uh, ends up somehow getting robbed of the decision, which leads to some congressional hearings. Yeah, yep. the senator from Delaware was talking all sorts of shit about looking into boxing. Just looking into the corruption because it was so blatant. And that's, the, that's what they were saying was, like, we really need this obvious, where it's so obvious that he lost this fight, why is it going to a split decision where he loses? So it's... Well, and thankfully, due to those hearings, they really cleaned up the sport, and there were no more bad decisions ever again. That's right. Yeah. Uh, I don't again. think I've heard of one. <laughs> Not in my <laughs> lifetime. I mean... Yeah. No, thank God for that. The Robin Williams. You're telling me the Oscars aren't political? Oh, <laughs> shit. <laughs> so, um... Keeps fighting at the middleweight, but then um, ends up on uh, February 13th, 1993, fought um, Iran Barkley to win the uh, IBF super middleweight title, which... Uh, this is peak, James. Yeah. Like, they, they, there are a few fights I would just say is a perfect performance. The, the Iran Barkley fight is absolute the best James ever looked. Uh, just it completely dominated start to finish. Iran was just tailor-made. He's just going to walk straight forward. <laughs> and James was able to eat him up, just slip and hit him with uppercuts pretty much at will the entire fight, uh, which I believe that one was pretty much an even money fight going into it. Because Iran Barkley had just beaten Roberto Duran, I want to say, or I might be a little fuzzy on the timeline there. Yeah. Uh, but Iran was fairly well-respected, even though he was kind of a – bit of a clumsy straightforward fighter but that just walks into james's strengths though yeah. Oh, oh yeah and he just got chopped up he, he was his lips were all ripped up and cut they, they had to stop it due to cuts i believe in the eighth 
uh, and James would never look better. Uh, I believe he follows that up with the Prince Charles Williams. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, which was another, you know, kind of classic performance where he, he stopped Charles Williams in the 12th round with, I believe, 30 seconds left. Yeah. Uh, which, again, another example of James really carrying that power late in the fights. Well, that's what he talked about, especially during the nun fight, too. They were like, hey, man, you're losing this fight. He's like, no, he's getting tired, and I'm going to catch up with something, basically. I mean, I, I've, one of the things that always made me appreciate James, there's a lot of confident athletes out there. I've never seen anyone... <laughs> More and honestly confident, not false bravado. James believed in James. Oh, yeah. A hundred percent. Which is why um, a fight that's coming up in 1994 in Las Vegas is something that kind of throws a wrench in that confidence because he never thought it could even happen. No, but when you, you come into training camp at 220, when you fight at 168, uh, that's uh, you're kind of pizza when you should have French fries. Um, <laughs> He's so. going to have a bad time. <laughs> And indeed, James would have a bad time against Roy Jones, which most people did, in yeah. fairness. Yeah, he was a great fighter. But um, he, I mean, that fight, if you watch it, he really gets, like, outclassed the whole time. It's, like, almost like two different fighters because he really gets into his head, and, like, it's all of it where you're like, oh, he's not even, like, in this fight. No, I mean, you, I, I could argue it's, like, 11 rounds to one or maybe even a complete shutout, yeah. 12 rounds to none. And it was a pretty shocking result because that was a mega fight when it was made. The uncivil war is what they called it, yep. And, uh, again, plenty of shit talking leading up to it, which is also fun. Oh, Uh, it's the best. But, no, James was completely outclassed. And I don't think psychologically he recovered for quite a while after that. That was – it was a lot for him to take. You can see it when the decision is announced. He tries to act surprised, but you you can (laughs) see that, you know, he he knew what had happened. And – you know, not much shame in losing to a prime Roy Jones, and you can argue it's Roy Jones' signature win. Yeah. Uh, if you go through Roy's career, I'd have a hard time saying there's a more notable win on his resume, but he did not see the best James Tony that day. No, it, it's the only fight where he had a standing eight count, and only Reggie Johnson had ever done that mm-hmm. in 46 fights leading up to it. So, I mean, he definitely got his ass beat that night, unfortunately for him. But... Uh, the uh, next fight is against Montel Griffin, and this is an interesting one. You uh, sent us the uh, HBO kind of intro for that fight. You want to get into it? Yeah, uh, Montel was 14-0. and This was seen as a nice rebound fight for James. It, it did not tend to go that way. No. Uh, now, me personally, I scored the fight for James eight rounds to four, but in a, it was a problem that would rear its head a lot through James's career that he really only fought one way. It was a lot of counter-punching against the ropes, let the other guy do his thing. And that didn't always play well with judges, so he ends up losing a close decision. Probably not a uh, dirty decision. I, I don't know if, in, if they, the promoters wanted anyone to win, they would have wanted James so they could get the lucrative Roy Jones rematch. But unfortunately, uh, James came up short in that one. And, it, it, you know, Montel Griffin wasn't a bad fighter. He's very awkward and, you know, high energy. But clearly he didn't have the same punching power. James hurt him at a couple of points in the fight, but uh, just a kind of a listless performance. It was not James' best performance by a long shot. Well, and going into the fight, too, it was his last one um, for the contract as far as Jackie Cowan. Yeah, and that, that's uh, the the lead-in on that. There, there was a lot of turmoil in his camp, understandably, because this was only three months after the Roy Jones fight. So I don't think psychologically in any way he had recovered from that you know, kind of shellacking he had gotten from Jones. 
So, you know, going into it, uh, Jackie Callen used to be in his corner during fights. He made her sit at ringside. She couldn't be corner, cornering him anymore. There, there were some accusations that Jackie Callen had wanted him to go on daytime talk shows and use the excuse of he had an eating disorder, which is why he lost to Roy Jones. Also pissed off James because, you know, say what you will, man, about him. He, he was not an excuse maker for the most part. Uh, Except for in the the aftermath, then it started to be blaming everyone. It was, you know, Jackie, it was Bill Miller, it was, you know, whatever the, the case may be. Uh, but that that was the end of his partnership with Jackie Callen in the aftermath of Montel Griffin. Oh, definitely. Yeah, and you could tell from him in that interview before the fight that he was just like, almost dazed that he actually lost to Roy Jones. Oh, like, he was still processing it for yeah. sure. Because I feel like it wasn't even just a loss; it was being dominated. Because yeah, he wasn't was in the so that. yeah, it was he wasn't in the fight, and it, I bet he had never experienced that in his life, where he was just so dominated and so, and he was making fun of him too. So I bet it was pissing him off, and it was all of it, you know. Uh, and, I mean, especially I think the 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 chicken move knockdown that yep. really pulled on him. I think that uh, especially having this moment that people laughed at. Mm-hmm. J- James strikes me as somebody who does not like being laughed at. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it, it was it was pretty rough times for him for quite a few years. Do you think that super middle was his best weight class? Uh, I would argue yes, although I, I think his career would have went better if he skipped 175 altogether and went straight to cruiserweight. Yeah. A- after the Montel Griffin fight, he should have said, look, you know, I'm naturally at least 190. You know, let me that, go up there. I think he would have done a lot better. Well, because he was 205, mm-hmm. like, when he was playing high school football. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, like, he, that's a lot of weight to lose to retain muscle mass and power, you know. For I sure. would at least think. Especially when you don't do cardio. Yeah, no, it's crazy. <laughs> Speed is the name of the game, Mac. But, um, <laughs> so, after the uh, Griffin loss in February 95, he wins uh, his next nine in a row <laughs> at uh, light heavyweight and cruiserweight. Um and then he has a rematch against uh, Griffin in that de- uh, December of uh, 96, I believe. It, which, uh, another of the notable things about James is, uh, I believe he had 11 fights in between the year and a half that he loses to Griffin and then fights him a year and a half later and had 10 or 11 fights in that span. God. Just just keeping himself busy, which, you know, modern-day fighters of, of James's level, they're fighting twice a year at most, maybe three in the rare instance. Uh, so, you know, you would have thought, okay, you know, he's, he's prepared. He's, you know, kept himself in shape. Fight plays out almost identically <laughs> to the first one. Uh, and it, it, it's interesting in that Montel Griffin is kind of the common link between Jones and Tony in that, you know, he fought James Tony twice, wins two close decisions, fights Roy Jones, wins by DQ in the first. And in the second one, Roy Jones says, just screw it. I'm going to square up. I'm going to knock this guy out because Montel was not a big puncher. And so Roy just walked through him in the second fight, which is how James should have approached it. Yep. He should have known this guy can't hurt me. I, I'm just going to get him out of there. Well, and the interesting thing about James is he had a very strong chin. Uh, you can say that. I mean, 90 pro fights, never knocked out. Uh, <laughs> That's ridiculous. The, the most he was hurt was probably the Reggie Johnson knockdown. Yeah. Uh, or very late in his career against Sam Peter. But for the most part, un- unshakable. Oh, definitely. Um, after that, um, in uh, February of 97, he beats Mike McCallum for the, uh, I believe, the cruiserweight title and then um, loses to uh, Drake Thadze for the uh, vacant uh, IBO light heavyweight title. Uh, other than Roy Jones, that may be the, the other biggest black mark on James. And that Thadze was a journeyman 
at, at best. Uh, I believe he was 28 and 8 coming into that. Oh, jeez. Uh, James comes in overweight, overweight, loses his title on the scales, and another kind of listless, ho-hum performance. And, you know, Thadsey, this time I actually scored it for Thadsey. It's one of the few that I scored against James. Like his his career, I, I, I would say he has four decision losses that I can argue against. I can't really argue the Thadsey one. He just... Yeah, came in out of shape, didn't seem to care, and it showed. Well, what was the story you were telling about the cookies? Oh, yeah, there was a <laughs> – I forget the boxing writer who had seen him in the lobby of the hotel before the fight. It was the night before the fight. And manages – he somehow sees James Tony with a plate loaded with cookies running back to his room, uh, which, you know <laughs> – it just as the quintessential James Tony story, and and you know it's like, is this guy taking it seriously? And he no. almost feels like a kid sometimes, where Very he much. just he can't be controlled. <laughs> he blames everybody. He eats too much, and like, well, when your dad steals your childhood, <laughs> but like you were saying, he has all of these fights one after another, not because he necessarily like has to have all these fights, but they were trying to keep him in shape mm-hmm. because that they knew that having a fight coming up would keep him in shape, which is kind of crazy to think of like a fighter at this level kind of being such a immature guy. Well, you guys had covered uh, Riddick Bowe and, you mm-hmm. know, had lots of laughs at the uh, kitchen <laughs> in the bedroom and, you know, his, his eating habits, which eventually destroyed his career. But James showed the the best way to manage that. If you can't get him to quit eating, keep him fighting. Yeah, seriously, that's though, his because... only form of conditioning. That's kind of what I thought through researching this. Because he he does get a little fatter later, but he always is completely uh, very in shape. A little fatter. Well, I'm just saying. <laughs> but like you were saying, he can always go into these late rounds. That's There's the thing gar- that I I have to give it up to Even him. Even at his fattest. I know it's crazy. He'll, he'll go say, twelve. There's a garbage bag of chimichangas somewhere, <laughs> Mac. <laughs> James cultivated much mass. <laughs> yes, he did. So after the Thadsey uh, fight, um, he beat Steve Little in June of 1997. Yeah. Um, and doesn't fight until 1999, actually. He takes a little bit of a yeah, hiatus. I, I think uh, it was time to hit reset. The The Thadsey fight was kind of the writing on the wall of, what the hell are you doing? Mm-hmm. Like, it was, it, I mean, losing to Montel Griffin, even in a highly debatable fights, which, again, I, I thought he won both of them. You know, that you can understand. Thadsey, there was no explaining that. That was a little a little much. And so, yeah, he takes this hiatus, and then we get to really kind of the third career of James. Yeah, a little bit of, of a renaissance here, yeah, I believe. To me, pre-Roy Jones, when he's a superstar, that's the first career, and then there's kind of the dark days there in the middle. Uh, once he goes to cruiserweight, finally seems like he is at an optimal weight for him. Doesn't seem drained. You know, knowing that he squandered a lot of time, seems motivated and works his way up to a title shot against Vasily Girov. Yeah, for the uh, IBF cruiserweight. Yeah, uh, which my probably favorite fight of James's career. Uh, a fun little thing about Girov: uh, he was a Soviet block fighter. Uh, mm-hmm. Forget the actual country. I want to say Kazakhstan. Yeah, I think it was wrong. Kazakhstan. Yeah, uh, he was trained by you know just kind of it, it was a rough methods used to train him at one point he was put in a hallway and they sick two dobermans on him <laughs> to that make was, him run that was part of his training jesus uh, so he was a pretty tough customer uh when he got in there with james and it, just a nip and tuck fight if anyone if you have not seen any james tony fights of of note the jira fight i would highly recommend entertaining throughout 
and really goes 12 rounds yeah 12 rounds with a highly dramatic and fun finish oh yes well they were saying because the volume that both of these guys throw is more than anybody else and that's why it was such a great fight because it was constant action uh jirov was i mean generally threw 100 punches around very high volume it was just kind of the perfect matchup where you've got this super high volume guy against you know just a the, great counter puncher yeah, who's yep. going to use that against him and for most of the fight, it looked like maybe it was not going to go James's way because as much as he was countering, Jirov was landing a lot of shots throughout that fight. But as always, James still had that gas going into the 11th and 12th. And going into the 12th, Freddie Roach tells him, you need to put this guy on his ass. And, <laughs> you know, James in typical James fashion, all right, fuck, goes out there and does exactly that. Puts Jirov on his ass in the last minute of the 12th and gets the decision. Uh, which makes him ring fighter of the year, uh, believe it, 10 years apart. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, three and became a three weight world champion and uh, comeback of the year, too, mm-hmm. which is just fantastic for him to, you know, get over that Jones and Griffin kind of. It really was kind of like the letting people know James was a special talent the entire time. He may have kind of went off track for a good decade there, but. He is a unique talent in the history of boxing. There's not many counterpunchers of his ability. No, not a, not at all. Um, his next fight, he moves up to heavyweight, though. And this is an interesting matchup. Uh, this is Holyfield. Yes, right? it is. Ooh, uh, some now, fun quotes here. <laughs> well, I mean, Holyfield, this was not prime Holyfield, no. which i got to be fair on that level. But it was not remotely competitive uh, <laughs> in any way. It was James start to finish. Uh, ends up basically stopping Holyfield with body shots, which uh, only the only other person to stop Evander was Riddick Bowe, you know, which is a very large heavyweight. So people yeah. did not expect James to knock out Evander Holyfield. And well, I did coming into it. I, w- I was full-on believer. That was, you know. I'm, really? No uh, way. No, I, I was – after the Giroff fight, I, I was high on the James Tony Kool-Aid. So I was like, <laughs> you know, let's see him fight the Klitschko's. Let's see him fight Mike Tyson. Let's do it. Because, I mean, James, you know, called out everybody. He yeah, wanted he to did. fight Lennox Lewis. He wanted to fight Mike Tyson. He wanted to fight the Klitschko's. Most of those probably would not have gone well. Hmm. Uh, I, I believe the 6'7 and 6'8 Klitschko brothers yeah, probably would have been To a 5'9 guy like Tony, that's just too much reach. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, you know, the bottom line, James would have taken those fights uh, without hesitation. Nice. But instead, he, he fights Holyfield. Uh, very impressive win, knocks him out in the eighth, and I believe follows that up with Ruiz, mm-hmm. uh, who, again, the, the ties with Roy Jones kind of continue all through his Well, career. they were trying to set up a Jones fight after this. That Did you see that, idea. Chris? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, which Roy Jones really didn't seem all that interested in. No. Uh, Especially heavyweight, right? Yes. That's what he didn't want because he it, wanted it to be, obviously, at the weight that he beat him at. Uh, or close to it. Near the middle somewhere, yeah. yeah. But, you know, where he would not have had the massive speed advantage at heavyweight. I exactly. Think he was, and at that point, how much how much money did James really bring to the table versus Roy taking easier fights? Which, although Roy's career would nosedive right after, because instead of James Tony, he opted to go Antonio Tarver, which <laughs> began the steep descent of Roy Jones's career. Uh, <laughs> But uh, so Roy Jones had beaten John Ruiz fairly soon or fairly close before the, the time James fought him. 
James fights him, dominates the fight, but then in a uh, recurring issue that would continue until the end of his career, po test positive for Nandrolone. Yeah, um, he had, uh, during the fight with Rydell Booker after that, um, he uh, basically hurt his arm. Mm -hmm. And what uh, ends up happening uh, after the Ruiz fight, yeah, because the Booker one was before the Ruiz yeah, fight. Yeah, yeah. And after beating Ruiz, well, then piss is hot <laughs> and he said that he got it from a doctor because of his arm and they were just like no it's obvious that you've been just roiding up and then you're right he gets popped a couple more times which makes it even more obvious so it was like it wasn't just like an injury he saw this that was like oh i'm older and i kind of need this and, and you know i i'm a big proponent of i mean if you're you know late 30s or above in boxing i i, I think we just need to be fair about it yeah it takes some hgh say it division. should be mandatory <laughs> you know i mean the guy went up from you know 160 to he's fighting at like 230 240 yep. toward the end there yeah let the guy do a little bit of roids I mean, he's, <laughs> five he's nine 240 like just oh my god i can't even believe it um but yeah they changed the uh, fight from a win to a uh, no contest the new york uh, mm -hmm. athletic commission um, and then we get into the uh, Dominic Gwynn fight, which was funny in 2006, just for one of the moments during it. Because James had done it a lot before, you had said. At the time, like, Gwynn was already kind of being seen as an afterthought. At one time, Gwynn was actually a hot heavyweight prospect. But, I don't know, just kind of a listless guy. He didn't seem to have a lot of passion for it. So, you know, he's kind of James's comeback fight. Really, the only reason the fight is notable is uh, James Tony spends the majority of the fight talking shit to another fighter who's in the crowd. <laughs> so, like, uh, when this is so great because when they tie up, he'll literally just like go to the crowd and just start talking shit. I love it so much. Chris Bird. Yep, it's like the Simpsons episode with Dredderick Tatum talking to Charlie Sheen. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the one I got at the sea bath, and then. <laughs> Uh, which, I mean, you know, if you're going to have, like, a fairly lame fight, at least make it entertaining, which yep. James had a good habit of doing. He's, like, the greatest showman, only not, uh, you know, in a circus. <laughs> but uh, next fight, uh, draw against Sassim Rahman for the uh, WBC um, heavyweight title. Another fight that I did not agree with the scoring. I thought James did enough to win it, it albeit very close. Hasim Rockman was in great shape for that fight, which this is another of my favorite James Tony memories is in the opening, you know, whenever they show the the initial graphic that shows the age and weight and reach of the <laughs> fighters, uh, Jim Lampley gives a very nice introduction. Uh, you know, it says that Hasim Rockman is coming in at a, a very chiseled 235 pounds and James Tony at, at 232 is a fat tub of goo. <laughs> uh, and that fat tub of goo uh, went on to, in my opinion, win that fight. Yep. Uh, I felt like Jim Lampley omitted and a tough SOB, which, you know. But see, that's the thing, and you had talked about it before, too. He's not scheduling lesser fighters. He mm. will just fight anyone at yeah. all times possible and, like, it's the Ric Flair mentality. You want to be the best, you got to beat the best. Like, and well, J James would not shy away from. I, you know, I do not care who it is. I mean, if you if you had a time machine and got a prime Muhammad Ali, he'd be like, "Fine, do it. I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll, let's do it tonight. Pick a weight. Let's go. <laughs> like, I don't need preparation. I don't need a training camp. Let's go. I need a plate full of cookies. That's right. I mean, the man ran on cookies. That's right. But, I mean, the major criticism about his style and all of that was that he had all these split decisions that it wasn't necessarily obvious that he won because he was so defensive. And it was, you know, as as good as he was in the ring and as talented as he was at counterpunching, there wasn't a lot of versatility to his style where 
you know, in certain fights, he would have been better served to fight a more aggressive style. Because yeah. that, that defensive Philly Shell style, it, it worked. There was nobody who ever, outside of Roy Jones, that really dominated him. But it wasn't necessarily friendly to a judge scoring the fight who might see you as having less activity. And they just score it on activity and what they consider to be ring generalship. Because you're on the ropes, they think that you don't want to be there. Well, there, you're, you were talking about before, there's no advanced camera angles or just mm-hmm. watching it on TV and seeing it for what it is. No, and I mean, it, it just kind of highlights one of the bigger problems with boxing is just, you know, having judges sitting on one side of the ring without the advantage of TV angles, are they really seeing the best representation of the fight? And I think in a lot of instances, they're not. Uh, but it, it it was a routine problem with James where he couldn't... Now, against the heavyweights like Haseem Rahman, I understand not being more aggressive. Haseem Rahman's a very large fellow, former heavyweight <laughs> champion of the world, hits hard. Uh, yeah, maybe not him, but, you know, the Montel Griffins yeah, and the Griffin, Batsons yeah. of the world. When you're in cruiserweight and super middleweight, that kind of area, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, be a little more aggressive. Definitely. Um, so he has... Uh, the next two fights are both against uh, Samuel Peter. And those are a couple of good ones. This is the end of the prime. Yeah. Uh, The first Sam Peter fight, uh, at least an entertaining fight. Another one, I thought James did enough to edge it. Uh, Seven rounds to five, I thought he he did enough. But they give the decision to Peter. Then they go into an immediate rematch, and this is the end of peak James Tony, or, you know, at least uh, competitive James Tony. So Sam Peter, very large Nigerian heavyweight just a bulky man and was able to just bully James for the most part. Uh, one of the other few times I had seen James legitimately hurt in a fight uh, where I believe it was maybe the second or third round, Sam Peter hits him with a right hand. Oh, and yeah. had James grabbing the ropes and trying to stay up. <laughs> uh, but, I mean, he is fighting giant people, and he is not a giant man himself. No, and that's what I found so incredible because how many guys fighting at the heavyweight division are five foot nine? It can't be that many, right? No, I mean he would be among the shortest ever. I mean, even Mike Tyson was like five ten and a half, five yeah. eleven. And he's one of the shorter in recent memory. Uh, I honestly can't think of any other like Joe Frazier was six foot. Yeah. Uh, but I mean to put on that type of weight, you need a taller frame at least to, you know, make it work, well, I would you, think. Did you, James showed you didn't really No, you it. didn't yeah. because when you're a fat tub of goose That's sometimes, right. you can just yeah, That was one badass fat tub of goose. Hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Again, I mean that oh, that Lampley quote is so cool. Oh, it's great. Uh, I, 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 one of the, the, so the best laugh I ever had in a boxing match, I believe. Was it really nice? I, I just, I mean, because it, it was unexpected. It's like, really? You <laughs> called the man a fat tub of goo. I, I wonder mean, what James had to say after that if he ever heard it. Did he, like, confront him? Well, I mean, you probably wouldn't have understood it. Like, one of my favorite things about James was the post-fight interview. Oh, man. Like which the we, we have Holyfield skipped one. over a little. The Holyfield one. Yeah, yes. Let's Jim do Gray. that. Yeah, Jim Gray comes up to uh, interview him, which he had been interviewed by Jim Gray before, and it went relatively well. For whatever <laughs> reason, James was in a bad mood on this one, so uh, <laughs> Jim's asking him fairly normal questions of, you know, do you think your speed was too much for Holyfield? And he's like, it must be too much for anybody. You know? <laughs> and uh, well, I believe James said, I, I ain't going to answer none of your badass questions. <laughs> don't know what that meant. Anyways, Jim Gray goes to ask him something else. James slaps the mic out of his hands. like, I don't even like you. Walks off. <laughs> Uh, which, uh, what are some of the other ones that you like, though? Like some of your uh, other favorites? After the Vasily Giroff fight, when he was uh, he was being interviewed by Jim Lampley, 
And he was totally not paying attention to Jim Lampley the entire time. Like James is just, he's talking to people in the crowd, not paying attention. Jim finally gets his attention, you know, and, you know, James like, well, first, you know, I want to thank Billy Blanks and Pastor Boo Boo. And uh, <laughs> I got milk, baby. That was, like, that was it. <laughs> it's like, what? Oh, what? When he was uh, interviewed by Larry Merchant, I want to say it was like after Prince Charles Williams, he's like, I'm going to Burger King, baby, Burger King. <laughs> you know, uh, he, he was always just fun in those post-fight interviews. How yeah. did Burger King not parlay that into oh. some sort of awesome marketing campaign? Seriously. He, he deserved it. Oh, God. King of the ring? Come on. <laughs> you're, an, you're a title holder. What are you doing next? I'm going to Burger King, baby. Burger King. <laughs> uh, James was just – he was quite the personality. Uh, I'll say on the, Sam, the second Sam Peter fight, that was like – that was just sad for me. I, I watched it live and – was that just the end, though, for him? That, yeah, I yeah. kind of had boo-boo face on that one. That was just like, oh. <laughs> I knew it was a bad matchup. Uh, actually, I had met Teddy Atlas fairly soon before the first Sam Peter fight. Oh, cool. Uh, I was at like a Friday night fights in Tulsa and end up sneaking over the barricade. They were like done with filming. All the cameramen were packing up, and Teddy was still there. And Teddy, super nice guy, uh, ended up like talking to him for like 20 minutes, primarily about the James Stoney Sam Peter fight, which he thought Sam Peter was going to dominate. Uh, so I was right, Teddy Atlas, uh, <laughs> for the record. But uh, yeah, I mean, his uh, Teddy's prediction would come true for the second fight. Yeah, just out and out kind of. Uh, you can only, you know go against conventional logic for so long where eventually as the older littler man you know the the ring wars are going to catch up especially with all the the sparring that james did which we had talked about the that was essentially james's method of staying in shape besides like a busy schedule was just all he did was spar <laughs> and yeah as you hear james talk today it kind of shows yep um, That's what people are saying with the excessive sparring because it's constant brain damage, essentially, or constant, you know what I mean? Like, you don't even get your skull or anything chance to heal. And, uh, yeah, if you watch an interview now, he is unintelligible. So, And, you know, James didn't do light sparring. You know, no. It, it was, he fought ring wars, you know, <laughs> where there, there are plenty of stories about, you know, people coming into the gym. Uh, Danny Green was a yep. – uh, not sure if he was light heavyweight or cruiserweight at the time, but basically just comes in looking to do some work with James, and James is never going to turn down a fight, so they, <laughs> they get in there and get into sparring. There's video of it online, and James gets the better of it, but at the same time, Danny was landing some pretty big shots, enough to the point it, it pissed off James enough to go to his locker and get a gun and had to be restrained. <laughs> oh. Because, you know, that's what you do. You know? Of course it is. <laughs> like in the replacements, just, I'll be right back. Yep. <laughs> it's pretty much my understanding of how it went. Is uh, He went and got a Mac 10. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so Danny leaves the gym that day. But, you know, good video online over that one. Uh, James did have a propensity towards pulling guns on people. Uh, He's Jackie like the... Callen being another one. We yep. kind of omitted that. Uh, at some point thought she was stealing his money. So, you know. I don't know if that was in the crappy uh, Meg Ryan against the ropes movie. I boycotted as a James Stoney fan. Well, he boycotted it too. He wanted no part of it. Yeah. You know, uh, Omar Epps plays a anonymous boxer who uh, he plays not James Tony. He plays, not James. He plays Tony James, which you know. Jonah Hill played the other person I mean, because Paul DePodesta didn't want to be a part of it. I mean, if there is any sacrilege to James's career, it's that a movie got made about Jackie Callan. Oh, like, God. 
You're right, though. In, it's in true. In what world is that right? Uh, it's so stupid. But the James Tony story in general should be a movie. Yeah. I, I, there's certainly material you could you could craft a narrative around. But oh my gosh, just no. the uh, growing up, basically watching your mom struggle and going through it, everything. He had talked about how slapping what, Neon Dion, slapping Neon Dion. How one of his friends when he was 18, uh, they caught his friend with drugs, and his mom just basically like explained to him, "It's prison rehab or the tombstone. You're an 18 year old black kid." Don't fuck this up. And uh, to James's credit, made the right decision, got out of the uh, dealing, and you know, yeah, because he was dealing straight. crack in high school when he was yep. on the football team. Yep, he said it was peer pressure, and, or you know, money in your pocket pressure. Either mm-hmm. one, I, and I can't fault him. For no, that. fuck no. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I certainly fault him more for his sweet tooth than anything. <laughs> yeah, right. But his mom's a baker. Yep. Like, how are you going to escape that? No, and especially with a, a you know a fairly rough life coming up, and it's like, well, hey, when I have an apple pie, I'm happy, and I, I think that just kind of carried through James's entire life, uh, which now at least hey, he's fairly fat and happy. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, because he kind of fought for the next comeback. few years after the Peter fights, but then we got into the UFC oh. and that sideshow. Yeah, and there's a bit of a, a sadness for me. Um, I have a lot of friends that they they knew at the time. As noted, I am a James Tony fanboy. So going into the UFC deal, I was actually excited about it. I'm like, <laughs> you know, no, nah, James, James is going to take this seriously. James is going to train. Oof. And uh, that was uh, me arguing against the history of James's career because James did not take it seriously and ends up in, uh, against Randy Couture, which is quite unfair. I was no, going to say, like, I mean, the so best veteran. Wrestler. Yeah, yeah. yeah let, let's throw you in with a, a classic Olympic wrestler. Uh, one of the best fighters in the sport, and there's your debut. Uh, had they put him in there with maybe Rampage Jackson, where yeah, that that would have been a more natural sell. The shit talking was certainly. Oh better. man, that would have been amazing. Uh, but instead, no, James kind of got embarrassed. I actually went and saw it at the AMC, like when they were showing UFCs there. Did you really? Yeah, I walked out after. Oh, I was, oh, I, yeah. I, I was, I was quite sad. Because it he was outclassed in wrestling, like that's just the only thing. It would have been it would have been great, <laughs> yeah. But it would have been great if he had another guy who was more of a stand up. Like that's what everybody wanted to see. Uh, no, but James talked so much shit that he well, kind of yeah. put the UFC in an unfortunate position. They're like, okay, this guy is shitting on our entire sport, saying they're all garbage, and he's going to come in and he's going to show them who's boss. So they're like, oh, that's how it is. Okay, and so they put him in there with Couture and. Just seeing James tap out was particularly sad to me. Mm-hmm. Like, he never did it in a boxing ring. No, but uh, you know when you got somebody on top of you just pounding you in the dome, it's yeah, somebody with uh, decades worth of experience, like you and, know. And I think James quickly realized I'm not getting out of this position. Yeah, uh, <laughs> he's just gonna, I can't shoulder roll out of an arm bar. No, nah, laying flat on your back, the shoulder roll is kind of nullified. So uh, <laughs> there's no ropes to protect you. <laughs> uh, tragic but yeah uh any other james tony memories that you have that kind of stick out that are really cool uh, i mean we we've covered most of them uh, i mean just the the knockout highlight reel is always great just to oh, you know, yeah. if you look up james tony highlights he uh, certainly entertaining uh and the shoulder roll was great but uh, it where was i gonna go with it just that just a, a, a consummate professional and that like 
he was a savant in that he did things no one else could really get away with. And the, the thing that gets me, coming from a football background, you would think that he would have better movement in the ring. And I was telling you that yeah. if I'm breaking down James and just rating him by attributes, the upper body movement, probably like a 9 out of 10. He was just super slick up top, but his feet, he's like a 3 out of 10. I mean, he he did not like to move around the ring. It was, he would get lazy and lay on the ropes where, mm -hmm. you know, really would have seen him try to do more with that. But all-time favorite James moments, probably the, the, the Iran-Barkley fight, which is just amazing to watch, you know, James getting off 20 punches in a row without anything coming back. Uh, he, he was he was phenomenal at 168. Uh, trying to think other notable moments that we haven't covered. Uh, sticking out the tongue on Holyfield was just Oh, but that was just mean. Uh, <laughs> and just, yeah, I mean, he – He's left quite a legacy of at least, you know, again, if you're bored, look up James Tony shit talking on YouTube and just kind of go down the rabbit hole. There is a lot of content. Well, I feel like he just he dominated at so many different weight classes that his style like really he, he was one of the better pound for pound fighters in that era because you could see him going through all these weight classes. And like you said, his really only time getting dominated was, you know, Roy Jones. And that was like. Well, Except for later, but you know what I mean. Well, and there's other good fighters on the resume we didn't even really touch on, like Mike McCallum. Who, yeah, the uh, McCallum fight. A fairly prime Mike McCallum, or at least just barely outside of his prime, uh, which they fought to a draw, and then they had mm -hmm. a second fight where James got a narrow decision, which I thought he won both. Uh, but Mike McCallum was one of the great but lesser heralded uh, 70s and 80s stars, uh, the body snatcher, which <laughs> body is one snatch. of my, my favorite fighter nicknames oh my god <laughs> uh, which was an, a, a, a worthy worthy moniker for uh mike mccallum he, he would he, he was pretty destructive going low but uh yeah, i mean just 90 pro fights over 29 it? years 29 years <laughs> yeah i mean i really wish he would have maybe cut those last five years off of there uh cut which, out the mma <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, yeah. that was a, you know, you get the paycheck. I understand it. And he did fight a bit after that, I believe. It was after that that he had the Haseem Rahman rematch, which mm -hmm. kind of full, which was another fight in which he tested positive for steroids. Uh, got a third round stoppage by cut over Rockman, which I, I thought James was doing well in that one. Then he fights uh, Frez, Frez Akendo, who was kind of like a yep. middling contender at heavyweight. Gets a gift decision on that one. That that was another one I Split thought James, decision. James yeah. lost that one handily, uh, but got a gift of a decision, and then just kind of I forget what's that. I think that's where we just get into fighting a few bums here and there. Yeah, uh, well, like he because went to he's Britain, a name. Yeah, yeah. to fight in like a tournament type of series. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think that was really the end. Where I mean, when you're fighting against basically club level fighters in a three rounder, and you can't win. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and time to hang him up, pretty much. Yeah, and I mean, you could already—I mean, the slurring in his speech was pretty evident. I mean, even around the time of the Randy Couture fight, I mean, it was—I mean, you can listen to interviews of him in his prime at middleweight, where you know, sounds clear as day. I mean, yeah. it's, there's a clear progression where you know you really wish there was a a national sanctioning body to be like, yeah, we think maybe it's time to. Hang it He's up. talking like Rocky and Rocky Five, yes. essentially. Well, that's one of the big shames about boxing is the lack of a a central organizing body where 
you know, there should be some kind of pension plan where basically social security for boxers where, you know, we're putting away a percentage of the purse just because we, you know, at some point we're going to say enough's enough guy. Yeah. Time to go home. You know, here's a little bit of money to, you know, keep you going. But They treat them worse than the NFL does, which is crazy. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I would argue, I mean, boxing is still kind of the outlaw sport that it started as where. Yep. I mean, back on in the old days when it was on, you know, barges off the Jack coast Dempsey. of New York. Yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> it hasn't evolved much. No. Well, I mean, it's still the same thing. Knock the other guy down. Knock him out. and Which is what I love about it. Yeah. It's, yeah. It, it's beauty is in its simplicity. Definitely. Well, uh, we appreciate you uh, coming on with us, Elias, and discussing James Tony today. Um, Chris, anything to add? No, nah, just a thank you to Elias. And uh, really, it was fun researching James Tony and watching all these highlights because, yeah, it was great. So thank you all for tuning in.